Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 991. To begin today's show, David Lorelow welcomes Bobby Wilson, former Major League backstop and current catching coach for the Texas Rangers. We hear about Bobby's playing days, from being drafted in the 48th round in 2002 to catching alongside Jeff Mathis and Mike Napoli, to eventually being hired to manage and now finding himself teaching young catchers himself. Bobby shares things like how important the pitcher-catcher relationship is, how analytics and iPads have changed the day-to-day for players in the dugout, his opinions on the one-knee approach, what it was like to catch Irvin Santana's no-hitter, and truly how important it is to keep learning things if you want to keep up at the major league level. One of the quotes that Kenny Holmberg, who is our, our minor league field coordinator, he always rattles this off to me. He's like, whether you're old school or new school, you need to be in school. And it kind of resonates with me because, you know, you have to be accepting of what's going on in the game. And if you're not, you're going to be out of it. And I think that it helps with our coaching. And I wish, honestly, I feel like I could have potentially been a better player had I truly known what was valued and people told me where I stood on a daily basis. After that, Dan Zimborski is joined by Jay Jaffe, and they begin by discussing the fascinating AL MVP race. Aaron Judge versus Shohei Otani is a battle between two unicorns, and both are deserving of the award, but there does not seem to be an easy answer for a number of interesting reasons. After appreciating the two juggernauts, Dan and Jay also discuss Zach Gallen, whose scoreless inning streak for the D-backs has brought on a bit of an oral Hershiser comparison, even if Jay has a bone to pick when it comes to how it's been done. The duo also talk about if the playoffs should count for MVP voting, how they don't seem to make them like Justin Verlander anymore, and Jay developing his new S-Jaws system. You know, as I've worked with trying to come up with a more workload-sensitive version of Jaws, Hershiser did stick out to me as a guy who would be worthy of enshrinement. This is my S-Jaws system, which I was playing around with in January and February, and really had been playing with. Wait, how do you pronounce home. that, though? It sounds like like Nordic. <laughs> I just pronounce it S-Jaws. But, uh, it's a, you know, it's basically what it does is it dials down the influence of the guys who have run 500 innings in the dead ball and 19th century eras. But before we get to these segments, I must issue you my weekly reminder to check out the Fangraphs.com shop. Not only can you get yourself some official Fangraphs merch, but you can also scoop up a Fangraphs ad-free membership, good for yourself or as a gift for a friend. It is absolutely the best way to not only browse the site, but to support the site, helping us to do everything we do. That includes not just this podcast, but all the stuff at the website and beyond, from original articles and research to leaderboards to projections to everything Fangraphs. It is all thanks to our supporters. We couldn't do it without you. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans. This is David Lorla. My guest is Bobby Wilson, former big league catcher, current Texas Rangers catching coach. That title actually undersells Bobby's role on the team. He does a good bit more than simply working with catchers. All that said, Bobby, thanks for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, big fan of Fangraphs and, and all you guys do and promoting the game. So this is a, uh, actually pretty exciting for me. Thank you for saying that. It's, it's great to have you. We had a, a couple of great conversations, mostly off the record at Fenway Park last week. And we're going to rehash a few of those chats. But I actually want to start with your playing career in 2002. 
This is somehow 20 years ago already. You signed with the Angels as a 48th round draft pick. That is nearly Mike Piazza territory, Bobby. Guys taken that late aren't supposed to make it to the big leagues, and you did. Yeah, I wouldn't quite put myself in the Mike Piazza category. But yes, I mean, the 48th round, it was a draft and follow, which they don't have anymore. And uh, Tom Kochman is, is the one who drafted me. I was able to play with Casey all through. Casey Kochman, obviously former uh, Major League first baseman for a long time. I was able to play with Casey growing up. Tom called me and said, hey, uh, you want me to draft you? And at that point, I was kind of over the draft. Uh, expectations were higher than that. And Tom gave me an opportunity. He said, you know, we'll, we'll take you in the 48th round. We'll draft you. We'll follow you through junior college. Wind up having a great junior college season and, and uh, signed right before the 2003 draft. So, you know, knowing that Tom Cotchin was going to be my first manager, uh, there's, I was obviously com- comfortable with him, and the rest is history. It was a great opportunity for me to, to jump in a pro ball, to be taken care of by Tom Cotchman. And to this day, I still give Tom Cotchman a lot of the credit for my success. He taught me how to be a, a professional, how to be a man on and off the field, and a lot of the credit goes to him for sure. And you played Bobby for a long time, including parts of – 10 big league seasons. When we talked last week, you actually used the words, well, I wasn't very good. But, you know, while you weren't Mike Piazza, you have to be pretty good to catch in the big leagues. And I think you really recognize that now after your career working every day with catchers. It's definitely special. It's, it's, I know it's a hard thing and, and I try to make sure that I never forget how hard the game is. And especially with, with the players that I have now, like that's the one thing that coaches told me, you know, if you ever get into coaching, don't forget how hard the game is. And that's why I, I always <laughs> kind of push my head down to, to say, hey, guys, listen, I understand how hard this is and I've been through it and it's not easy. And I understand that you're going to make mistakes. You're going to make errors. Uh, things aren't going to always go your way, but I think it's important that my players know that I have their back. I'm going to take care of them. We're going to figure out solutions. We're not going to make excuses. You know, and like I said, the big thing for me is, is find a way to make it right, figure out solutions. And when uh, you played with the Angels, which you did for a few years, uh, Mike Sosha was the manager. I think a lot of people realize when they look back at the Sosha years in Anaheim, Jeff Mathis was the primary catcher. And Jeff Mathis was not a good hitter. I don't think Jeff Mathis would even you know, disagree with that statement. There are some good hitters, good hitting catchers that Sosha did not prioritize over Jeff and yourself as the backup. Yeah, I mean, we had, you know, Mike Napoli there. Obviously, he hit, what, 200-plus homers in the major leagues. You know, there was three of us there at one time, and, and, you know, Mike's priority was the pitching staff. And who's going to truly take care of the pitching staff? Not to say that Nap didn't. Nap worked his tail off to be as good as he could defensively. But, you know, Jeff had a – Jeff was, was very, very gifted. And obviously, by the, you know, 15-, 16-year major league career that – that shows, but that was prioritized in our organization at that time. It was pitcher catcher relationship. And that's something that I bring to the Texas Rangers as well. Like, you know, we have four pillars and pitcher catcher relationships is the number one pillar of our development program. And I learned all that from Mike Sosha. And, and I tell these guys, Mike Sosha told me this. He said, Bobby, he said, they're going to bring you wheelbarrows full of money if you just listen to what I say and follow the program. 
and I believed them. So that's what I did, and it came true. I wish there was a few more wheelbarrows, but you know, it was true. It was I always had a job, and and people were looking for people like me, players like me, because they knew that I was going to work with the pitching. I was going to make the pitchers better. We were going to be on the same page. I was going to be prepared. I was going to be ready. And I was going to be dependable for the pitchers, for the pitching coaches, and for the manager. And, and, you know, that's kind of the way Jeff and I modeled our playing career. We were, we were very reliable when it came to game planning and understanding pitchers' strengths. On the subject of managers, Bobby, when you retired after the 2019 season, I believe you were actually initially hired to manage in the minors. Yeah, I was. I was originally hired to manage the Double A team, and at that time we had uh, superstar, uh, super prospect Sam Huff, who is you know, and he's with us now in in the big leagues. But part of that process was obviously understanding how to manage, go through the day to the day to day in the minor leagues, and then kind of see where it went from there. So it was something I was really looking forward to. And obviously COVID hit that year. So winded up doing the taxi squad with the Rangers in Arlington at the old stadium. And then the next year I was on major league staff as a catching coordinator. Yeah. So Bobby, you, you spend a lot of time you know, with the manager. You're in the dugout. So you're not just working with the catchers, you're working almost as an extra pitching coach and, and as a bench coach. And with all of that, the information you've gained, I guess we can circle back to when you played, you were not really into analytics. Is that correct? Yes and no. You had to start learning it as it got later in my career. I had to start understanding it more. Early on, it just wasn't there. I mean, it really wasn't. You used your eyes you, you trusted the coaches that they were giving you the right information. But, I mean, going to where we're at now in the game, I just can't tell a player, hey, do this or do that. I have to have objective information that says, hey, this is why I, I told you to do this. This is, this is why I want you to make this move behind the plate. This is why I want you to set up this way behind the plate because your numbers are reflecting what you're, do, what you're not doing well. And it's just at this point in time with where we're at, you have to have object, objective information with these guys or they're just they're not going to listen. So you have to know these numbers now. You have to be in tune with with what's relevant in the game. And, uh, you know, one of the one of the quotes that Kenny Holmberg, who is our, our minor league field coordinator, he always rattles this off to me. He's like. Whether you're old school or new school, you need to be in school. And it kind of resonates with me because, you know, you have to be accepting of what's going on in the game. And if you're not, you're going to be out of it. And I think that it helps with our coaching. And I wish, honestly, I feel like I could have potentially been a better player had I truly known what was valued and people told me where I stood on a daily basis. Because that's what I, I do that with my catchers every day. We have a review. I say, hey, this is where you stand in the league. This is where we stand in the league as a team. So this way they are, they're aware of what's important to us and how we need to get better from the catching standpoint. And how do young catchers, you know, Sam Huff, you mentioned earlier, Jonah Heim, the primary catcher now, what has their evolution been like in the last two years as far as catching skills and game calling? Well, it's it's... I feel like at times we've gotten so far into pitch design, shapes, movements that we've kind of 
taken that information, but also formulated a plan with them to say, okay, here's what our pitcher does well. And I think at times we get away from what our pitcher's strengths are and we get so wrapped up in, in, oh man, this, this slider was, you know, it was a banger. Yeah, but he can't execute that slider. So I need to figure out a way, you know, is his curveball better to strike? Is his fastball, where can I use it? All that stuff. We get that information every inning so we know that we can make adjustments with it. So like I said, the information has helped these guys make quicker decisions. But again, going back to still understanding what my pitcher is capable of doing will always be, you know, in my opinion, the most important part of these guys game planning and learning how to game plan and continuing to move the process forward. And you have a lot of that data, Bobby, right in the dugout, in game, you know, iPads, et cetera. To what extent is that used and that information communicated to the catchers? Yeah, it's funny to me because if you ever get to see the dugout, you will see, I think we have 10 iPads in the dugout. Every single iPad is occupied (laughs) during every single inning. So these guys are getting instant feedback. It has you know, everything that you could possibly want on there. It has on the iPads. These guys are watching video. They got different uh, angles. You know, it's it's spin rate. It's it's vertical movement, horizontal movement. These guys are looking every swing they take their, you know, launch, exit. So these guys are making adjustments and these guys are starting to understand how the numbers make pitches play, it, which is, is fascinating to me because back in my day and, you know, to be the old, the old baseball coaches, you know, back in my day, you just used your eyes. Now these guys have objective information that says, uh, this guy's got 20 vert. We got to hit two balls above it, you know, which back in my day, we're, we're swinging underneath it. We, we can't make that adjustment, but now they're able to make it so much faster. The iPads have, they're good and bad because there's a lot of guys that spend more time on the iPads and watching the games, but you know, to get the information these guys need to be successful, it's it's definitely a good thing. So if you are in the dugout or your pitching coach is in the dugout on an iPad and you see that, say, Glenn Otto is getting less vertical in the fifth inning than he did in the fourth, or maybe less horizontal on a sweeper, I would think that a good catcher is going to recognize that behind the plate, though, that he doesn't necessarily have to go to the data. Yeah, definitely. Definitely your eyes are going to tell you, you know, and to be honest with you, the hitters will let you know. If his four seam isn't carrying, the hitters will let you know before you even get a chance to truly see the the pitch because most of the time you're asking for a new ball. But I think that's where the pitching coaches come into play more so uh, as far as movement profiles. They, you know, they will let the catcher know, you know, because the catcher has so much going on in the game. So the conversation would be like, hey, his four seamer isn't carrying as much. Let's use more sinker today. And those in-game adjustments are made every inning because like i said all this information is readily available for these guys so the pitching coaches see it right away they make the adjustments catchers verify it you know by looking at it and by catching them but again the hitters will be the first one to let you know if your stuff isn't isn't playing right and with all of the the stuff that a catcher has on his plate you know game calling and sequencing are obviously important how would you prioritize the well the priorities for a catcher you know, hitters, weaknesses, pitchers, strengths, game situations, et cetera. Yeah. So that's exactly how we set up our, our game calling. I guess you'd call it protocol standards. Expectation is, you know, there's, there's three pillars for us. It's pitcher strengths, 
hitter's weakness and game situation. And with the hitter's weakness and game situation, they can be interchangeable, but always sticking, in my opinion, with pitcher's strengths, right? And, and we talked about this the other day is, is if I get beat with my pitcher's third or fourth best pitch, I have a tough time sleeping at night. That doesn't mean that we only use, you know, their top two pitches, but it means picking spots to where I can use the third and fourth pitch, right, just to get the hitters off of my best two pitches. But when it's all said and done, you know, I found that as a catcher, if I got beat with my pitcher's best pitch, I could sleep better at night. If I got beat with his last pitch, I had a tough time sleeping knowing that I had three other options, two other options to go to, to execute that pitch, to get us out of that inning, to help us win that game. So that's just kind of what our mentality is. And that comes again from Mike Sosha. Again, if I didn't feel it worked, I wouldn't use it. But one thing about Mike Sosha was that he was so far advanced when it comes to you know, we had a, a, the catcher's molecule chart. We had meetings, consistent meetings on, on how to put together a game plan, how to call a game. So all this stuff was set in motion, you know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, but it still holds true today. And you have worked, of course, Bobby, with a lot of very smart pitchers over the, the years. The Rangers' new GM has spent, did spend a great lot of time on the mound and is very analytically knowledgeable. I did make note of the fact that you and Chris Young were sitting together in the dugout chatting quite a bit at Fenway. What are your conversations like with Chris? I think they're just about, you know, a lot of them are, are the pitcher-catcher relationship. You know, I know, I know CY knows what that means. You know, for me, pitchers were always my best friends. Uh, I mean, I just, I always gravitated towards pitchers because I truly cared for them and I always want to know what they were thinking. There's a lot of psychology that comes into that, but as far as CY and I are, our conversations, they're, they're, how can we make this better? How can we push forward? How can we bounce ideas off each other? And, and the best part about CY and I is we have disagreements on things which I think is healthy. And we always seem to work out or have better ideas that come out of those kind of discussions, which is cool because, you know, there's obviously a mutual respect. Uh, you know, he did the, he pitched for a long time. He knows that I played for a long time. We come from different backgrounds. We have different ideas, but I think it's, it's healthy. And I think it's important to, you know, bounce ideas off each other. And that's, that's kind of what we do when it comes to, you know, our, our daily conversations. Putting you on the spot, what is an example of something that you and Chris Young maybe haven't agreed with completely without giving away any big team secrets here? No, I, I think the one, that, and it's funny because we're both pulling in the same direction with this. And, you know, it's not really a, a big quarrel between us, but it's something that we always joke about is, you know, CY believes that the pitcher should be able to call his own game and go through all of it. And I always argue, I said, well, the catcher is making most of the suggestions in the game, you know, and, and times at times through my experience, I've seen pitchers get sped up and, and they truly trust what the catcher is putting down because in all honesty, the catcher is putting in a ton of work to understand, you know, like I said, he understands the pitcher. He understands the hitter's weaknesses because the majority of their day is put into that. And then the game situations, the the situations changing every inning, every hitter, and understanding that, whereas pitchers at time, I feel, aren't as in tune with that, respectfully, 
and that's something that we always kind of go back and forth on. And it's, you know, I'm always a little bit harder on the catcher. I say, yeah, we got to know that this is what we have to do with that pitch. And, you know, CY's like, well, no, the pitcher has to know that he should shake off and get to this pitch because he should know. And we just kind of go back and forth. But we're both pushing in the bo- the same direction of these guys need to be in tune with each other. They need to be in tune with what they're capable of doing, the game situation, what this hitter is looking for. You know, so it's something that we go back and forth on. But again, it's it's healthy. It's us having conversation because at the end of the day, we both want the same thing. We want to win a world championship with the Texas Rangers. And I think that, you know, by us having these these conversations and these conversations go on with everybody on our coaching staff too. How can we get better? What can we do? And it's it's encouraging to see, you know, obviously the results haven't been great this year, but, you know, I truly believe this organization is pushing in the right direction. And I know, Bobby, from our earlier conversations that you were really big on the pitcher being fully convicted with every pitch he throws. But at the same time, when you go back to the knowledge of a catcher, especially a veteran like yourself, there have to have been times in your career where you're behind the plate and you're getting shaken maybe by a young pitcher and you pretty much know that you're right. So how did you deal with that? And how do you want the catchers you work with to deal with that? Yeah, so I think shaking is a good thing. We talked about this. The pitcher conviction and pitcher commitment to making a pitch is probably one of the top priorities is when it goes into game calling. But it's funny, we had this conversation last night on the bench. Sam Huff says, uh, you know, this guy, he, he, he shook to get to this, but I know this is the right pitch. So the way that I always handled it was, you know, we get limited mound visits now, but if it's a big point in the game, it is it is crucial that we call timeout and we go talk to the pitcher about it. You know, because I want to hear what he's thinking. I want him to hear what I'm thinking, and then we can make a decision together. But this way, it, we've had this conversation. We've, make the, we've made this decision together. Now it can't be, oh, well, he wanted this and he threw this. No, we talk about it. And that's a big part of, of game planning also when you talk about pitcher-catcher relationship and these guys being in the dugout together and having these conversations. Hey, this is how we're going to attack these next three hitters. This is where we're going to start them off with. This is how we want to finish them. This is our bridge pitch to get us back into an advantage count. But these conversations should always be happening throughout the game to promote this scenario that we just talked about, like pitcher shakes. Well, we just talked about this. Why is he shaking? Let's go talk about it. I'll take my mound visit. Now we come to a decision. We're both on board with it. And then you go to pitcher conviction, pitcher commitment to executing that pitch. And, you know, like I said, you can sleep at night if you have that conversation, if you are prepared. But if you're not, that's the tough pill to swallow. So just how important, Bobby, is good pitch sequencing? I had a pitcher tell me recently that he thinks it's maybe not as important as some people think that if you execute your best pitches in the right spots consistently, that is always going to be the most important thing, that hitters aren't going to hit a pitcher's best pitches. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think you can marry both of them. I think that, you know, I I tell this to pitching coaches, to pitchers, to catchers all the time, it will always be pitch execution over pitch selection. If you execute your pitch, the chances of them getting a hit is a lot slimmer. And there's going to be times where you execute a pitch and a hitter just, you know, you got to tip your hat. But I think there is a marriage of both understanding how the pitches play and what parts of the zone they play. You know, do you have a repertoire that X's out corners? 
Are you a little higher advanced with higher entry pitches? You know, and then truly identifying, and I, and I know from the hitting side, the game planning with guys with two or three different fastballs gives, you know, hitting coaches nightmares. And by that meaning, you know, do they run a sinker, cutter, and four-seamer off the same line? You know, that, that gives a lot of guys headaches because it's, it's tough to defend. But I, I do think that understanding pitch sequencing, pitch pairing, all that stuff is important. But again, if you can sequence perfect and if you don't execute that pitch, it doesn't really matter. So I think, again, sequencing along with execution, leaning more towards execution on my side is probably the most important part of this. There are uh, two more things that uh, I want to touch on here, Bobby, before I let you go. One is that I believe that you caught a no-hitter in your career. So I'm wondering what stands out about that game, including whether or not there was actually any shaking or just following along with uh, your game calling. I mean, there's def- there's always shaking in those games. But the funny story about the, the no-hitter with Urban Santana is the first inning, ground ball to shortstop, there was an error. He steals second base. Next guy gets him over. Then there's a wild pitch. We're actually losing one to nothing in the first inning. And we obviously go on to, we, we won that game three to one. But at the time of the, at the time of the, during the game, the no hitter didn't even cross my mind until we got the lead and we got into the, to the eighth and ninth inning. Uh, it was, it was early on. The first inning at that point, you're thinking, okay, I'm just trying to win this game. So a lot of the pressure of the no-hitter was off until, you know, we got to the pretty much the ninth inning, I'd say, and we got down towards the end because at that point you're just trying to win a game game, and you don't even realize you have a no-hitter. But it's probably one of the the highlights of my my baseball career, and you would know better than I would, but there's not very many of those in comparison to how many games have been played. And to be a part of that special group is, is something that means the world to me and, and forever grateful to Irvin Santana because, you know, without him, I, I, I wouldn't have done it. He was unhittable that day. And it was cool to be a part of it. The celebration after was, was short because we had to jump on a plane. And I always joke with people about this throughout my playing career. If it was a day game, and it was a, or a Sunday or a getaway day, I was definitely playing, you know, and it just happened to work out that the no hitter I caught was on a day game getaway day. So it was, it was definitely uh, the highlight of my, my playing career and, you know, something that I'm very, very proud of. So Bobby, that would r- rank as a bigger highlight than getting a base hit in your first big league plate appearance or your famous uh, two home run game. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, <laughs> that ranks way, way ahead of that. Not it's it's not even a not even a, a close comparison. Yeah, when I say famous, I guess I'm thinking in Bobby Wilson annals. Not being Mike Piazza hitting home runs and consecutive plate appearances in the same game has to rank pretty high up there. Yeah. For me the other the other highlight would potentially be the you know, I got traded in two thousand sixteen, I got traded last day of spring training to Detroit. Then I get traded uh, and I believe it's still a major league record, but the the shortest distance traded between the same two teams. They'll give they'll give you something to look up there to make sure I'm I'm correct about that. But in that span, I uh, got traded, and two days later hit hit a grand slam. Then six days later hit another grand slam. So I hit two grand slams in one week span. That's also uh, something in Texas that they continually remind me of, which you know, which is pretty cool for a guy who only hit 18 career homers, and for a lot of people who played a lot longer than I did who didn't hit grand slams, I was able to do that twice in a week. So 
But again, none of the none of that stuff really compares to the Irvin Santana no hitter. And honestly, none of them of all the, you know the things that I've done in the game. The the thing that I'm most proud of is is the relationships I've built, the friendships I've built, the people that I've met, the places that I've been. That's the most rewarding thing to me when when you talk about my baseball career. Spoken like a true defense first catcher. Yeah, Bobby, I do, I, I do want to touch uh, on one more thing. Uh, we were chatting in the dugout at Fenway about how much pitch profiles have changed slash improved, and technology is a big part of that. You have guys out throwing bullpens who are making their balls move in ways that I'm guessing you really didn't see when, when you were behind the plate. No, and, and the tech that we have in bullpens, the tech that we have in the stadiums, like I said, these guys – Edutronic cameras, Rapsodo, Trackman, all the uh, Kinetracks, everything is tracking this stuff. And, and these guys are able to slow down video to see, you know, outlier pitches. And now you see more guys with outlier pitches because of these technological advances in the game. But it's, it's crazy because these guys are so much better than the guys that I faced. Respectfully, of course, uh, I'm saying that with, with, Increased velo, increased spin, and those are you know the those are facts. The facts are the facts. the The numbers have definitely spiked over the last five years, and I think it's all because of the pitch design, the profile movements, understanding this guy's this guy's ball moves you know x vertical, x horizontal. How do we get this? Oh, let's check his grips. So now they're changing grips. They're changing arm paths. The Lucas Giolito uh, shortened up arm path has become a thing. So there's so much stuff that, you know, it's it's a copycat league. And, and if somebody sees somebody having success with one thing, they try to figure out why. And they do it really fast. You know, it's the snap of the finger. And they, they've pretty much got it dialed into, okay, this is what he does. You know, and, and they can start bucketing guys and understanding this guy. I mean, we could go down a rabbit hole with this, but it's it's body profiles. You know, it's it's body movement stuff, and then you go into okay pitch design. So, like I said, th- th- these guys are the stuff that these guys are displaying on a day on a on a nightly basis is it's part of the reason why I'm retired now because I don't know if I could if I could handle these guys uh, with all their stuff anymore. But it's impressive to watch on a nightly basis at the major league level to see what some of these guys are capable of doing and the understanding of what they're really good at. They know that now they know what they're good at and they know how to exploit hitters with that. Part of what you just said, Bobby does prompt what will be the last question. You mentioned uh, body movement. Catchers have to move well behind the plate to handle all of this great stuff. What are your thoughts on catcher positioning and the one need approach that seems to be fairly controversial. Yeah, I think it is. And I think when, when the one knee stuff, and just to make it clear, the one knee stances have been around a long time. We talked about it, you know, with Tony Pena and we talked about it with Mike Sosa when he caught Fernando Valenzuela's no hitter. There was times where he was on a knee during that game catching. And and I remember seeing the rerun of it and being like, dang, Mike always wanted us to catch a certain way in the traditional, but he was catching in one knee when he caught a no-hitter. So I think when we talk about body movements, we talk about the catching position specifically. I think the biggest grief that I've had with the one knee stuff is that we haven't educated our catchers the proper way to get in those stances. So, and, and, and by saying that, I feel like a lot of the times when it originally came out, 
catchers were just anchored to the ground. They said, hey, just go to one knee, you know, without truly educating them on how the body moves, how the body works, understanding, you know, positions that don't allow our body to work the way they're supposed to work. So that's kind of where in our organization, we've kind of, you know, peeled back the layers of this and we're trying to get, you know, I always say, you know, there's, there's half truths in this game. So one of the things that I always try to do is, was prove myself wrong with everything I've ever taught, everything I've ever learned and really challenge myself to say, okay, we're doing this, but why are we doing this and try to prove it wrong? And in doing that, especially with the one knee stuff, I, I found that if we can put ourselves in the correct position and what truly happens from traditional to one knee, we can, we can mimic the same movements as we would from traditional with the one knee. And I just, I truly believe that putting yourself in the right positioning allows you to move laterally. We've actually, there's an article that came up that says one knee blocking has, has dramatically improved. And I think that's the education of understanding the stances that we get in with one knee. And, and again, and this is something we talked about, I talked about yesterday with the, with the catching buddy of mine, was giving these guys a, a menu list of items to understand that not everybody should catch the same way. But here's a list of items that I can give you, whether it's the glove load, whether it's the stance, is it kickstand, is it modified kickstand, is it traditional? Okay, here's all the here's all the stances you can use. Now let's objectively look at this and say, is this truly working for you or is it not? Objectively with you know receiving numbers, with blocking numbers, with throwing numbers. And then if it's not working, then we have to go to the next menu list item. So again, with the one knee. With the traditional, honestly, for me, it doesn't really matter. If you're not in the right position, it doesn't really matter what stance you're in. But if you're in the right position and you understand how the body moves, how the body works, you will be able to move laterally. You will be in a good position to receive and you will be in a good position to throw. So again, it goes back to, can I prove myself wrong, right? How am I going to prove myself wrong when it comes to this? And really, I found out that the one knee stuff is, is it's beneficial for catchers. It's not for everybody. But I feel that, you know, again, if we can properly put them in the position they need to be in, they're going to be successful with it. Bobby, great stuff. I think one thing that we have learned in our conversation here is that catching is not very simple. You know, the, a lot goes into it cerebrally and physically. And you have been doing it for a long time and you are now teaching it. So there you go, Bobby. I guess on that, we'll close. And uh, I will just thank you for being a guest on Fangraphs Audio. Yeah, like I said, thank you so much for having me on here. And, and again, thank you for, for all you guys do to promote the game, to uh, continue continue to, to have old guys like me learn and understand and, and find new ways to make the game that we love uh, make it better. No, thanks again, Bobby. And thanks, everybody, for listening to Fangraphs Audio. Welcome to the second segment of Fangraphs Audio. I'm Dan Zaborski, and I'm joined today by Jay Jaffe, who is home from his his glorious vacation in Southern California. We're here to talk about Shohei Itani, Aaron Judge, Zach Gallen, other things that happen to come across in the path of conversation. So, Jay, thank you for joining me today. Hey, thanks, Dan. Always good to talk to you. So, in this blood battle between the Aaron <laughs> Judge denizens and the Shohei Itani rebellion... Who do you take and why are you going to destroy the other people? 
You know, I, I actually, having run through the exercise here, I still don't think that anybody has a completely airtight case. You know, we've got three and a half weeks left to go in the season here, and, and I think that we, you know, we should still keep an open mind about who should be MVP right now. We're watching two unicorns race. You've got Aaron Judge, who's having, you know, one of the most remarkable power seasons on record. He's uh, already got 54 home runs as we speak here on Wednesday and uh, might have even more by the time uh, this this episode hits the streets. Editor's note, he does. At the very least, he's got a shot at uh, beating Roger Maris's franchise and American League record of 61 home runs. I think Barry Bonds' record of 73 is, is safe. I don't think we need to attach the the specter of PED-free legitimacy to judges' pursuit to see that this is still very significant, particularly given that he has bet tens of millions of dollars uh, of his own future earnings on uh, this season and, and has performed so well wire to wire, even while the Yankees have crumbled around him. And on the other hand, you've got Shohei Otani, who is having a season that the only precedent really is, is what he did last year when he won MVP, and he's actually taken... Uh, significant steps forward on the pitching side. And I think, you know, maybe less impressive on the hitting side, except for the fact that it's still uh, only a few points below what he was doing last year in terms of WRC plus and uh, uh, just a, you know, a remarkable combination that uh, um, if judge didn't exist, it would be easy to anoint Otani the MVP again, but now there's food for thought. And I think it comes, it comes down to, you know, what you want the MVP award to be and, and how you value the various intangibles that surround the two performances. I think this was a lot easier last year. Last year, I mean, I wasn't a voter in the AL MVP. I vote in NL awards, and I probably will continue to vote for NL awards. But last year, I mean, there was more of a separation between kind of Otani combined batting and pitching and, and Vladimir Guerrero Jr., who had a marvelous season, but Eric Judge is having a better season. There's kind of two things that separate him. It's that Eric Judge is you know, hitting better than, than Vladi did, than Vladito did, and that he also does have some additional defensive value i mean he's played yes like 500 600 innings in center field he's played it respectively way more respectably than than you know someone who's like six seven should be playing center field but that kind of makes it more difficult i think that if i was forced at gunpoint and i think in these conversations were forced at gunpoint mm -hmm. that i probably would take judge over the combination of otani which is something i didn't expect i guess when we go back three or four months uh, before judge found an extra gear i find the ped stuff is going to come out and i don't think it necessarily makes judge's accomplishment look better when people go into that kind of vein of thought because instead of saying aaron judge has a great accomplishment people are, are then saying aaron judge has this great accomplishment in part because we're discounting these other accomplishments which yeah. makes it kind of sound like judge is second place and he had to make a whole bunch of butts and because and what fours for him but you don't i don't think you need to do that this is one of the all-time great offensive seasons that he's having uh and i think it's okay to appreciate that on the level uh although people who are mad at me on twitter and probably mad at you on twitter over time probably do not agree with that yeah, I mean, this is any, I think anytime you weigh into an awards argument, it's hot take season. And the opportunities for misreading and for taking an argument in bad faith are, I think they're already high when you're talking about Twitter. They're even higher when you're talking about awards races. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, I wrote about Francisco Lindor having an MVP caliber season. Does that mean I think Francisco Lindor should be MVP? No. Read the article. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, 
I'm saying, like, and he's got a he's got a season that would put him in the discussion for MVP awards. Has been good enough to win MVP award before, and might be again. And with you know, at that point, there's a month to go in the season. Could still win it if he if he gets hot and somebody else goes cold. You know, the door is open, and I think that applies here too. These guys, you know, there's three and a half weeks left in the season. We might still see some separation. I mean, it's very difficult to believe Judge can keep hitting it to this level. Because it, it is far above his established norm. You know, 202 WRC plus is just, you're going to regress more, more often than not. Whereas Otani, what we're seeing here is probably more representative of his true talent level. We saw, I mean, he's hitting the same as he did last year, essentially. Pitching's a bit better, uh, cause he's, he's added a pitch or he's, he's, he's tightened up his pitches. He has added a pitch, a hundred mile an hour turbo sinker, which, you know, mostly hasn't really had too much of an effect in terms of the actual results. But if you're already dealing with the potential for five pitches, uh, that you could throw, adding a six there is like, ah, oh, good night. So I don't think we've seen the closing arguments for these guys. And I think that, you know, the assumption that, one way or another, we have to decide on September 7th or 10th, you know, leads to these sort of bad take assumptions that, you know, you're saying the argument is closed here. No, it's not closed. It's still wide open. And, you know, the rules of the voting are such that you don't have to submit your ballot until the last day of the season. Now, uh, these MVP discussions always kind of bring up a point in my head that I like to ambush friends and colleagues with at times, and I will do so here. Do you think that when the Baseball Writers Association, the, the, the point at which we vote for year-end awards, do you think it's right the way we do it? Do we, we vote for the MVP award before the playoffs even start? And isn't it kind of odd to have a playoff scenario where it's supposed to be for the championship of the sport and it doesn't count in any kind of MVP voting for the season? Do you think that's a mistake? You know, it's tough. I think I'm fine with it. Because I think you've got separate awards for the postseason in, in that you've got, you know, LCS MVP, World Series MVP. I don't think anyone really cares about, you know, if they, if they were to start handing up, handing out wild card or division series MVPs. That would, that would seem to be kind of silly. The one game MVP when they had that. <laughs> yeah. And it's, and if you, if you wait, you know, if you wait until November to cast all these ballots, you know, you, you run the risk of letting those impressions that were formed in, in, in October sway you. And I, you know, I, I don't think it would be unreasonable if you're starting from scratch to decide that, yes, we're going to vote on this and it does include the playoffs or whatever, but then you're probably always going to limit yourself to anointing a, you know, somebody from a winning team and maybe a championship team to those awards. And I think the, you know, I don't think that does enough for our appreciation of the breadth of great talent that we have. You know, we're seeing it with Otani, we've seen it with Mike Trout, we've seen it with countless other stars, Ernie Banks, Ted Williams, going back, a guy who might be the best, one of the best players all time, one of the best players in the game, doesn't necessarily mean he's going to get an opportunity to, to win championships every year, if ever. And, you know, I think it's a, it's a mistake to rely upon the crutch of the postseason to help us determine who gets those honors when they're already getting that honor, you know, via the, the, the whatever happens in the playoffs and, and the, the importance we attach to that. 
a frustratingly fair answer, I think. I'm, I'm torn <laughs> either way, similar to the way I feel kind of on positioning rules and banning the shift, that I kind of see an argument both ways and I don't want to have to be the one to choose. I am more confident about including things like postseason data when we're talking about war and career and stuff, because I think there's this kind of oddness where sometimes we, we talk about the, the postseason, but in kind of a very arbitrary fashion where just like certain highlights are brought up as, as opposed to a player's whole record. But if we're as long as we're talking highlights, I want to get on another subject. Zach Gallen has a scoreless inning streak going and he's close to catching Brendan Webb for the longest in Arizona Diamondbacks history. And he's not that far from hitting the top 10 four innings. I think I, I had it written down, but uh, I forgot because my memory is not as good while I age. How do you feel about Gallon? Do you think that he deserves a place on, on this top 10 of players that has a lot of really good pictures? Yeah. You know, it's, a, it's, it's very interesting. And I was not, Particularly aware that Zach Allen was doing was doing this. I knew he was having a good season. Zach Allen. Well, you had to be aware of Diamondbacks, and this right. is really, yeah, the yeah, they're not they're not an exciting team. Right? Who was it that Bill James compared to bad jazz in the eighties? Do you remember? Was that the Padres or the Astros? Oh, or shoot, no, it would have been the Astros because the Astros were good at the time, so it might have been the right. Padres. But the Diamondbacks aren't a team that I've really necessarily turned to to watch a lot this year. Uh, so it kind of stuck on by me. I didn't know it until he was like in the twenties for scoreless innings. Yeah, it, it's it's an impressive season. I think what strikes me most is like when I found out when I when I saw your article on it from a few days ago, I had this instant gut reaction like how dare he? And <laughs> that's because Oral Hershiser's 59 inning streak was was kind of a coming of age thing for me. He concluded it while I was a freshman year in college. Yes, I'm dating myself here. I'm 52 years old. You know, I was a freshman in college when he wrapped that up and then went on to carry the Dodgers to uh, a, you know, a world championship through his continued brilliance. And, uh, you know, what Hershiser was doing then, he was throwing, you know, complete game after complete game to get the record, just like Don Drysdale did it. For Hershiser, I've got his game log up here. September 5th, nine innings, four hits shutout. September 10th, nine innings, seven hits shutout. September 14th, nine innings, six hits. September 19th, nine innings, four hits. September 23rd, nine innings, five hits. September 28th, 10 innings, four hits. Not even a complete game. 116 pitches, and Tommy Lasorda had to take him out. This is the Dodgers' 159th game of the season. But he got the record. He beat Drysdale. Zach Gallon hasn't thrown a single complete game in this, and I know baseball has changed you know, and I know that what he's doing, if you compare the run context, the scoring context of what he's doing to what Hershiser or Drysdale has done, he's doing it in a higher scoring context. He's got a lower ERA minus, a lower FIP minus. So there's, there's a degree to which this is more impressive. But the fact that he's not throwing nine innings, I still sort of feel this, you know, kind of how dare he. The most he's gone is seven innings and he's gone, I'm sorry, 7.1 innings. That's the streak. It's, it's uh, a bunch of seven inning starts and, and one six inning start and, uh, it just doesn't feel the same to me. So that's my gut reaction there. One of the things that highlights for me what a different sport it is today. Uh, yeah. If you go back to Oral Hershiser's September run of, you know, nine innings, scoreless, shutout, his 10 inning, his 10 inning game against the Padres. He didn't throw 120 pitches in a single one of those games. Yeah, it is pretty remarkable. I mean, you know, this this is I think 1988 is the start of the pitch count era, and he had outings that were higher than that. 153 pitches on on June 4th when he went nine innings, 
uh, gave up 11 hits and five walks and yeah, five Yeah, he wasn't even that great that loss. game. And he yeah, was just, can you imagine you that know, today? That's a, that's a Tommy Lasorda special there. I mean, just grinding, you know, grinding through these arms. But yeah, he was he was very efficient during the streak. I mean, he had one three walk game, but uh, two, three, you know, five games in which he had two or fewer walks here, and it wasn't a huge strikeout pitcher. Right? He had eight, a maximum of eight strikeouts uh, in those games during the streak, and so you know, it was more contact oriented. Which, geez, I mean, that kind of magnifies the level of accomplishment because those Dodgers were not good fielding teams ever. You know, they they were notorious for always choosing the hit the hitter, the better hitter. You know, when given the chance, I mean, we were a few years before the Jose Offerman era here, and maybe Alfredo Griffin at shortstop with his uh, 50 OPS plus uh, is the exception that proves the rule here. But, you know, they tended to, to, to choose the hitters because they needed to, given how pitcher friendly that park already was in those days. What, you didn't like the the corners that have Franklin Stubbs and Jeff Hamilton? Uh. Oh, God. I mean, this, just this whole lineup, besides Kirk Gibson and, and Mike Marshall and John Shelley, was just hot garbage. I mean, they, you know, after they traded Pedro Guerrero to the Cardinals, it was just a very weak-looking lineup. It was a subpar year for Steve Sachs and Mike Sosha, two guys who admittedly were, were, were capable of better. But, geez, once Gibson got hurt and they're playing Mike Davis in his 196 batting average, I mean, nobody thought that they had a chance against the A's and the Bash brothers and that that legendary lineup. So it's, it's remarkable to think of, think about that. But, uh, but yeah, Hershiser deserves some credit for, for doing it, with the, you know, surrounded by the team that he's doing. And in a, in a way... This almost goes back to the judge argument. This guy's doing this with surrounded by much lesser mortals. The somebody, uh, Brian Hoke, I believe it was, tweeted a stat about the Yankees and their performance since uh, since August first. While he's put up a two thirty WRC plus since in that time, the rest of the Yankees have hit two hundred three, two sixty seven, three ten for a sixty six WRC plus. So it kind of feels the same way that uh, you know one guy sticking out like a sore thumb and basically carrying the rest of the team to victory. Hershiser's 153-pitch start makes me wonder, apropos of nothing at all, uh, I wonder what pitcher over the home run era has had the highest pitch count in a game. I seem to recall Tim Wakefield had like a 157-pitch start at one point uh, because uh, under the theory that you can't break a knuckleballer, but I don't know offhand now that I think of it. I seem to remember a story about Al Leiter being left out to throw something like 160 pitches in the rain and that having a, you know, leading to an arm injury, but uh, I can't remember offhand here. Let's see if we can pull this up on the game log here. We can find Al Leiter's highest pitch count. Well, in the meantime, <laughs> Oral Hershey is interesting in that he's also a pitcher that kind of highlights the, the Baseball Writers Association, the voters of the Hall of Fame, kind of moving away from players with high peaks. Hershiser got very little consideration when he came up for the Hall of Fame. Johan Santana, who I would say was, you know, essentially 80 to 90 percent of Koufax at his peak, also got even less attention uh, for the Hall of Fame vote. Do you think that under a more peak friendly future, it's some undetermined date that Santana and Hershiser would be legitimate Hall candidates to start talking about again? Yeah, I think so. And actually, you know, as I've worked with trying to come up with a more workload-sensitive version of Jaws, Hershiser did stick out to me as a guy who would be worthy of enshrinement. This is my S-Jaws system, which I was playing around with in January and February, and really had been playing with. Wait, how do you pronounce that, though? It sounds like like Nordic. (laughs) I just pronounce it S-Jaws. But, uh, you know, it's basically what it does is it dials down the influence of the guys who have run 500 innings in the dead ball and and 19th century eras 
you know, and the massive peaks that they had when you're calculating their jaws for comparison to more recent guys. And when you do that, Hershiser stands out. Dave Steeb stands out. I assume Santana stands out as well here. I'm not remembering here. Before before I get to that one here, Al Leiter, 163 pitches when he was 23 years old, pitching for the Yankees against the Twins on April 14th, 1989. I believe Dallas Green was the manager because, of course, that probably would have been it. It seems like a Dallas Green thing to do. Yeah, it was. It was Dallas Green, so I probably was, was you know, was going to call him a if he came out or something like that. And uh, yeah, that that was not a not a, a good long term move for for Al Leiter, who uh, missed some time due to arm injuries, and it really wasn't until 1993, four years after this, that he finally fully established himself in the majors with the Blue Jays. And uh, so he spent some wilderness years. And I wonder, you know, he probably would have gotten to 200 wins had it not been for that. And I don't know if we would, would have considered him for the Hall of Fame, but certainly would have had a stronger case there. But getting back to the uh, Johan Santana question, he's still a little a little below where, where Dave Steve was, but not very far off. This is a 48.3 S jaws. He is between Steve at 49 and Hershiser at 47.6. So he's right in there. So yeah, I, I did because the lockout ended, I didn't get to continue the series. Uh, some point I'll have to pick it up. But Santana is right there in that zone. So yeah, presumably he would be a guy that, that I would point to as being worthy of enshrinement here. But you're right, the, the BBWA kind of turned away from that. I mean, you go back all the way back to the election of Fergie Jenkins in 1991, you know, it took 20 years to elect another starter who didn't have 300 wins for a while of it. And, you know, I made I made a lot of hay with that in my book, the Cooperstown Casebook. But uh, really, the writers have not gotten back to a very peak-friendly era when it comes to pitchers. And I think we're going to kind of have to if we ever want to elect one again. Um, just because, you know, the Justin Verlanders are going to be the exceptions here. We're not going to see these guys uh, make runs into the high 200s if they're coming out after five or six innings. And the thing about Justin Verlander is even he is partially, he kind of has like a, a leg in like what is the last era. Yeah. Sometimes people kind of act like this has been like a 30-year thing, but pitching picture innings starting picture innings are down considerably in recent years as well and you only go back 15 years for verlander and you look at his innings there's like there's like a 240 a 250 another near 240 he would not throw that amount of innings if he came up say in 2015 instead of 2005 it's very different and the question is how quick Hall of the Hall of Fame will be, or the writers will be towards adjusting to these realities. Given the past performance, I I hate to cast aspersions upon my colleagues, but given some of the past changes, I I would say not very. That change tends to come slow. Yeah, I'm very slow. Verlander, in fact, has the last 250 inning season in 2011, and I used uh, he threw 251 that year, and I used 250 innings as the basis for the scaling factors of when when I'm uh, incorporating uh, the peak scores in, into this updated version of JAWS. It was very much with Verlander in mind because that seemed to be the outlier at that point. And what we're seeing, we just, you know, we've only seen, even if you go back, if, you know, four years before that, CC Sabathia had 253, Roy Halladay had 250.2 in 2010. Yeah, we're not seeing 250 inning seasons anymore. There are we're more than a decade removed from the last one, and I don't think the Marlins can, can possibly work Sandy Alcantara hard enough to, to get there for the next one. Well, since I have to actually go and write an angry letter to the family of Silver King, letting him know about the Jaws <laughs> numbers being taken away from him, so 
I think this is a good place to wrap it up so I can write said letter. <laughs> Jay, thanks as always for joining me on another untitled segment on Fangraphs Audio. For Fangraphs Audio, I'm Dan Zimborski. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Bobby Wilson for joining us, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the program, consider sharing it with a friend or two. It helps us out. After you've checked out the Fangraphs shop and considered an ad-free membership, don't forget to also sign up for the Fangraphs newsletter. It is the best way to keep up on all the cool things we have going on, free to your inbox. And if you haven't downloaded the Fangraphs app to your phone yet, what are you waiting for? It's great when you're watching the game and want to look something up. I highly recommend it. That should do it for us this week. Be excellent to each other, and we'll talk to you next time.